everybody, and welcome to another episode of What's in Your Hometown. That's right, we're still alive. For now. <laughs> For now. <laughs> uh, where we talk about the dirty little secrets in your backyard. So, Julia. <laughs> yes, Sam. <laughs> How are you? Oh, you know. <laughs> when we recorded less than two weeks ago, I was like mildly concerned. Now I'm really sure that everyone in my life is going to die. <laughs> yeah, like this is the apocalypse. It's fine. It's and I'm fine. still real apathetic about it. I'm like, ah, well, oh, yeah. it's happening. It's going to happen with me going going out by drinking vodka. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. No, no it's a. Uh, you guys need to stay inside right now. You need to stay inside. Please, Please stop and- going to the beach. Oh God. That's okay. Um, so yeah, anyway, welcome to coronavirus <laughs> 2020. Okay, um, so like when, when the 20s came around again, I, what I wanted was like, I wanted to bob my hair, wear a flapper dress and say things like, this coffee is the bee's knees. I did not want <laughs> a plague, a stock market crash in World War Three. I did not want any of that. Yeah, by the way, I fully forgot that we almost went to war with Iran like two months ago. Right? It was two months ago. It was a huge thing. And now we're all just like, oh, okay, cool. We're all dying for a different reason. It's fine. <laughs> uh, I just I just wanted to use the old phrases. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to use them anyway. Yeah. I'm going to start posting them everywhere. So if somebody does survive in a million years from now, they find my bones. They're going to be like, what's the bee's knees? <laughs> I'm waiting to call I'll something the cat's pajamas. It's fine. The cat's pajamas. Did they put their cats in pajamas? How satanic! Like, <laughs> anyway. oh my god, yeah, no, it's a, it's a thing. It is a thing. I think everyone collectively has the same backyard right now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, just to give a little snapshot of where we are, because it's way different than it was yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. we're currently recording this on March twentieth. Animal Crossing just came out today. Borderlands 3 came out on Steam instead of the crappy platform that it was on. Those two things together should be good. They really should be. Um, But currently, the last I checked, the U.S. infection toll was at like 14,000. We've got more than 200 confirmed deaths. Uh, That's going to change and go up pretty significantly by the time that we get around to posting this in two days. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, California has basically just shut down the state. Yeah, California today just uh, did like a an absolutely stay home order. Every sort of business that's not essential is closing. Although I have to admit, I'm really thrilled with Grubhub right now right? and DoorDash. Not only are those people like actually holding the country together, um, <laughs> their apps have now like a no interaction feature Mm -hmm. where your driver will just call you and scream at you from across the parking lot that he's here he'll leave (laughs) your food on your door and then leave i know because i've done this it's very exciting to be on that's what i wanted from the beginning i know it's i hope they keep that after this whole thing blows over because it's Mm -hmm. not gonna blow over for a stupidly long time and we're gonna be in this for hmm, for a while a while yeah um yeah hi yep here we are. <laughs> no, but guys, stay safe. Stay safe and don't panic. Don't go to yeah. the supermarket and do what I saw a little old man do today and buy all the eggs. 
Yeah. You don't need all the eggs. Mm-hmm. No, there is not one roll of toilet paper left in the state of West Virginia, I'm sure. But no, it's fun. So stay inside, be safe, don't panic. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, uh, if you want to play video games uh, with us, well, with me specifically, because, I mean, I'm stuck inside, can't do shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, look for Nixon Grace on either PS4 or Xbox. Yeah, and, I mean, my handle is uh, Zyla89 on mm-hmm. both Steam and PS4, so. Yep, yep. We would love to play some video games with with people. Absolutely. Yeah, come hang out with us. All right. So um, before we get into it, tell the people about the network. So we are happily and proudly part of mm-hmm. the Civilized Creatures Entertainment Network. We have some really amazing shows. We've got uh, The Untrained Eye, Drinks with Larry, Married AF, and Picks and Bones. Um we have some really amazing shows. Our creature feature for this week is going to be Married AF because we missed them when we didn't record for a week. Um, mm-hmm. And also Drinks with Larry because they're just fantastic. They're so funny. Yeah. So go ahead and check them out. Um, it's uh, Married AF on Instagram and Facebook and then Married as Fuck on Twitter um, and then Drinks with Larry everywhere. They have a Reddit. By the way, I didn't Drinks know that. Drinks with Larry has a Reddit? Drinks with Larry has a Reddit. <gasps> I'm so excited. I know. All right. Are you ready for the coin toss? Sure. All right. Coin flip on the way. Oh, fuck. We did <laughs> <laughs> Why are we like this? Okay. Do you want heads or tails? Uh, tails. Tails. Okay. <laughs> you would have won that if you had chosen it before. Okay. Let's see. Ooh, tails, go for it. Oh, awesome. Okay, so anyway, it's... Stop flipping. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, I've got two myths for you, two urban legends. Um, and they're both pretty short. They're both um, driven by my desperate need to be outside of my house during spring. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, I just, I thought that it would be fun to do like a lighthearted thing for once mm-hmm. um and i'm going to do like, oh that's good because mine's real fucking depressing <laughs> yeah but anyway as i'm sitting here and staring at this like beautiful cherry tree outside of the window uh i wanted to do some like spring creation myths or like how did Ooh. ancient cultures explain spring um so super exciting i'm thrilled um, I'm thrilled. I'm going to be doing one from the Hopi uh, Native American culture, and I'm also going to be doing a Greek one because I, I it's my favorite. Can't help myself. Yeah. All right. I love Persephone. I do bitch. too. She's wonderful. Okay. Um, Plug. Uh, if you haven't read Lore Olympus, on go Netflix, read it. Get your fucking ass over. It's so good. Go read it right now. I like. 9 p.m. on Sundays, I'm, like, at my phone, and I'm, like, oh, I have to read. I have to read it. Girl, I'm there to. at, like, 12 on Saturdays because I have no life, so I'm, <laughs> I'm like, ooh, it's just been updated. Uh-huh. No, seriously, it's so exciting. Anyway, so the first one that I want to talk about is the uh, spring origin myth from the Hopi Native American culture, 
because it was one that I didn't know. And it's honestly fairly similar. Um, mm-hmm. These things sort of run through a pretty cons- consistent uh, pattern. And I think it's really interesting to see how two cultures who have never interacted have such similar stories. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the Hopi Native American people are a fairly large tribe. They have a reservation in northern Arizona, and according to the last census data, they were a smidge under 20,000 people. So, still alive around, doing pretty well. Um, But their tale goes that of the ancient deities, there was one who was especially beautiful and kind, and she was known as the Blue Corn Maiden. Um... She was friendly with the rest of the spirits and generally beloved by the people. Um, And one evening, she went out to collect some firewood. And that's not a task that she did very often. She usually had other things to do, but she was being nice and decided to go and get firewood for the rest of, you know, the people she was hanging out with. Mm -hmm. Um, And while she was out, she ran into a new spirit called the Winter Kachina. Now, they had never met before. Um, but he immediately fell in love with her. Um, they started to chat and he invited her back to his home, which she gladly accepted because she was very kind. And, you know, they were having a good chat. They were having a good time. Um, but once they got back inside of his home, the walls turned to ice and she became trapped. Oh. Yeah. Um, and he kept her there imprisoned for quite some time. And while she was there, the world around her started to suffer without her presence. You know, she's Mm -hmm. a corn deity. She's very important. Mm -hmm. Um, After a while, she was able to break three by tunneling out of his house. uh, And she made a fire to warm herself. So with the fire, the snow started to melt and she was able to escape. When she got outside, the summer Kachina came to her aid. Uh Uh-huh. Um, much like the winter Katina, the summer Katina quickly fell in love with her. And the two of them generally got along pretty well, uh, but they didn't have very long to get to know each other because the winter Katina returned home and found, found out his, his bitch was gone. Yeah, I was going to say, found out his wife was with his brother. Um, oh. <laughs> not great. So, no. Uh, There was a huge battle, it wore on for a really long time, and they were just equally matched. They were both very powerful. Mm -hmm. So it obviously wasn't going to be won by either side, and they had Mm -hmm. to sit down and talk it out. Eventually, they together had an agreement that the Blue Corn Maiden would spend half of the year with each. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they ever asked her about this. Well, I sort of got the impression no. that they didn't. <laughs> but that was the agreement that was reached, was she would spend half the year with the summer Kachina and half the year with the winter. Um, mm-hmm. So whenever the snow melts and uh, she returns to the world with the summer Kachina, the corn will also return to the land with her. Um but if you feel an unseasonable chill, it is the winter Katina showing how pissy he is because his wife is away. <laughs> Run a big old temper tantrum. I love it. Yeah. 
So anyway, that was the the Hopi Indian or Hopi Native American story, um, which I think is it's really cool. It's you know fairly similar to the story of Persephone and Hades. There's a lot of within religion. There's a lot of sim- similarities that cross different religions. Like even if you think about these stories about spring and um, Christianity's Easter, of course, Jesus went into the underworld and then came back out. And then Mm -hmm. you have like, it's, it's, there's so many similarities. It's, it's an area that I would really, if I can get back into school, I'd really like to focus my studies on the um, similarities between religion and mythology. Yeah, absolutely. That would be fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, on to the stories of Hades and Persephone, because my favorite um. <laughs> oh no! I just realized that Jesus was the waifu. <laughs> you know what? Never mind. We can just end the whole podcast here. We never have to make another episode. We're not going to top that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that needs to go on something somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so the stories of Hades and Persephone, some of you probably are more familiar with it, um, Mm -hmm. but it's something that I freaking love and I'm so excited. So basically, story goes that Hades is, you know, king of the underworld. Um, he, he doesn't really get to go out much, but whenever he does, there is this specific hill that he likes to go and sit on because there is a beautiful maiden on the island of Sicily, I think, um, that sits and picks flowers in the meadow with some nymphs and is really, you know, he just watches her and is very quickly drawn to her and so they fall in love a little bit. Mm-hmm. They don't. Uh, Hades does. Persephone, I don't think, knows he's there. <laughs> well, um... Depending on uh, which myth you go, because the further back in time of the Persephone-Hades myth that you learn, the more it was an equal choice. And then it evolved into fucking take her and force her down into <laughs> Exactly. <the> yeah. <laughs> so I like to think that it was an equal choice because there definitely are myths to support that. Um, mm-hmm. And in virtually every myth, regardless of how old or new... Persephone did enjoy her stay as queen of the underworld. Mm-hmm. She took her duties as queen very seriously, and she really did fall very deeply in love with Hades. So that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one day, so the story goes, Hades just could not contain himself any longer. He needed, I'm trying, no, I need to, I need to calm myself down. It's going to be like, he needed that pussy right now. I don't want to say that. Uh, that is exactly what I was <laughs> I don't want to say that. But anyway, uh, Hades, one way or another, gets Persephone to the underworld. And Persephone's mom, who is, from what I can tell, not that healthily attached to her daughter. Um, <laughs> Harrison... There's some issues there. <laughs> um, 
Persephone's mom is Demeter. She's the goddess of the harvest and of crops and of all of these wonderful things. It's great. She's very important. Uh, and she gets real depressed the second that she finds out that her daughter is uh, not in her favorite little meadow anymore. And she just just throws the biggest temper tantrum of apocalyptic scope. Like, mm -hmm. it, she just she just sulks until Persephone comes back. She locks herself in her, like, little cave room and will not come out. And meanwhile, everyone on Earth is starving and dying, and we're all super boned because none of the crops will grow without the harvest goddess. <laughs> And we're all like, so Zeus, so can you can you talk to her? Can you please talk to your side, bitch? I just and Zeus is like, oh, I would love to, but I've just looked at my calendar and I have to fuck a hundred women in the next three days. So, um, pretty much, uh, but eventually. Everyone finally comes to Zeus and is like, dude, we, okay, if all of the mortals die because they can't eat, we don't have anyone to worship us anymore. We need her to stop throwing a hissy fit. <laughs> like, real bad. And so Zeus is like, fine, I guess. I guess I'll, I'll put my, uh, pursuits on hold for long enough to go talk to my brother. They can be left on red. They can be for just that long, just for like a little bit, just long enough for a conversation. That's fine. Um, so Zeus and Hades confer and Hades says, you know, no, <laughs> my wife, go away. I, this is mine. I don't, you can't have this. Yeah. One. <laughs> I don't want to give her back. This, that's your issue. Um, and Zeus is like, I can't, I can't tell you what to do in your own house. This is your kingdom. You make the rules. I understand that. I can't interfere. However, literally everyone is dying. And Hades is like, eh, good for business. Not my problem. Yeah, that doesn't affect me <laughs> at all. <laughs> that is a boom in industry. Uh -huh. But they eventually come to the agreement of, you know, so long as Persephone has not consumed the food of the underworld, she can return to Olympus. She can return to the world and be amongst mortals and go do her thing so that Demeter will quit punishing everyone. Mm -hmm. And they, they decide that that's a pretty fair agreement. However, Persephone has eaten six pomegranate seeds while she's there. Um, and this ties her to the underworld for six months of the year. Mm-hmm. So, for half the year, she can come back to the world and hang out with her mom, and they can go do mother-daughter hippie flower things. <laughs> um, they need to go to mother-daughter therapy. They really do. <laughs> they really, really do. But that's, I mean, <laughs> bitch, we're still waiting. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, and then for half the year... Persephone returns to the underworld to rule as queen alongside Hades, and she generally really likes that and enjoys herself and enjoys her job and uh, is very happy with that arrangement. But while she's there, Demeter uh, locks herself away in said cave uh, emo hole 
and we'll just that's why we have winter because the harvest goddess is moping because her daughter went to go live with her husband winter needs a hobby like online shopping or seriously pick up something to do can you do embroidery I know you like gardening grow some shit that's your whole job I know you like gardening fucking garden (laughs) so there we go there's mine there's my stories for this week (laughs) all right So mine is quite a bit longer because I was looking for something like I wanted something interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for something. um, I think what I typed in was like um, the oldest urban legends uh, within America. And of course, that would you would think lead me to some Native American legends. No, it did not. Google (laughs) your shit together. Okay. What it did lead me to was the idea of that crazed madman in the woods with a hook hand. So you have the candy man, you have the hook handed man, you have, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's in every uh, part of America that you have this different variation of the same idea. Oh yeah. No, that's pretty everywhere. What I found was the legend of Cropsy. Okay. Which is a Staten Island legend. And it's, I mean, it's the standard boogeyman story. A homicidal man supposedly an escaped mental patient with a hook for a hand who hunted children and dragged them back into the tunnel system under the abandoned ruins of the old Seaview Hospital in Staten Island, New York. Oh, oh, this could be so good. Okay. Here's the thing. Um, It's true. Oh, fuck. This This one's true. In a sense. So that, that that's the old legend. And now it existed before the events that I'm about to tell you unraveled. But that's the old legend was you had this escaped mental patient who kidnapped children and drugged them into the tunnels under the old Seaview Hospital in Staten Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it varies depending on who you talk to. Um, maybe he didn't have a hook for hand. Maybe he had a giant cleaver. Maybe he had a long knife. Maybe he had a machete. Uh, but it's the same idea. It's this escaped madman in the woods. Never a good place to find one of those. It's just not. No. <clears throat> Especially on an island. No. So, um, uh, Seaview Hospital was an, a former tuberculosis sanatorium. So it was a um, contagious disease sanatorium with its own tuberculosis wing. Mm. Not in operation today. No, but I feel um, like those might make a comeback pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as all boogeyman stories are, it was used to keep children out of the woods, which in Staten Island was called the Green Belt. Um, and the urban legend of Cropsy was uh, even inspired a 1981 slasher movie called The Burning. However, mm-hmm. in the 1980s, the story went from legend to all too real. So it went from this Ooh. legend to hit front page news. So okay. to truly understand the story, we have to go back to a time when Seaview Hospital was open, specifically when Willowbrook State School, which was across from Seaview Hospital, was operating. Okay, so let's go back to Seaview. So there was Seaview Hospital and, and its tuberculosis war, ward, um, and then there was like um, off to the side of it, there was a farm colony um, in the middle of it, or off to the side, uh, which was nicknamed the Poor Farm. 
Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of that was Willowbrook State School. So it was like this huge area that was dedicated to CV Hospital, the poor form, and then Willowbrook State School. Now, okay. Willowbrook State School was strictly for the mentally ill and had been operating since the 1930s. It wasn't an asylum. It was, but it, <laughs> but it like, quote unquote, wasn't an asylum. Um. When individuals began moving into Willowbrook in 1947, the school had a maximum capacity of 4,000 residents. By 1965, 6,000 residents were were, uh, were living at the school. So like all asylums. Mm. Par for the course. Not yep. good. No. Get a different course. Uh, Bad New things. York, okay. Yeah. New York Senator Robert Kennedy referred to Willowbrook as a quote-unquote snake pit after visiting the school. It was, it was not in good condition. He immediately called for a five-year action plan to improve the treatment of the patients, uh, but you can imagine how much that was implemented, which means not at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we go into the um, expose that eventually got Willowbrook shut down, uh, let me give you a rough explanation of the living conditions. So... Willowbrook State School was not for uh, the mentally ill in a sense that you would think about it. It was for people with uh, development on intellectual disabilities. Okay. Yeah. So um, during the uh, College of Staten Island's 21st annual Willowbrook Memorial Lecture in 2014, a former Willowbrook employee, Diane Buglioli, uh, who worked at the school for 11 years, said that while prisons allot 80 square feet per inmate, Willowbrook provided 35 square feet per resident with no place to put treasured items or personal possessions. That's bad. <clears throat> yeah. So Willowbrook was exposed for the horrific place it was in 1972. They'd been operating since the 1930s at this point. In 1972, um, a reporter was contacted by Dr. Michael Wilkins, which was a former staff member at the school. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Wilkins reached out to reporter uh, Geraldo Riviera because he was appalled by the conditions of the school. In fact, Dr. Wilkins had just been fired because he had been urging parents of the children in Building 6 specifically of the facility to organize so they could more effectively demand improved conditions for their children. So he'd been basically contacting parents and being like, listen, you y'all need to get down here. You need to see it. You need to organize. You need to force better living conditions for your children. And so mm-hmm. the uh, the school fired him, and he did not take that well. No. So he went to a local reporter and was like, "I can sneak you into the school. You need to come with a camera crew." Mm-hmm. So Riviera and Dr. William or Dr. Wilkins showed up unannounced one day to find the exact kind of conditions you would expect from a school of the mentally ill, uh, which remember wasn't, uh, wasn't, it yeah, no, it's not wasn't like... like an asylum. It, it was just kids with developmental disabilities like autism or down syndrome, or I mean the whole spectrum of developmental disabilities. A school that I would have ended up in. Yeah, no, it was, um, cause before you go shitting on the parents, it was the 1930s. Uh, rights for individuals like this, it wasn't well known. They didn't really have any rights. The parents didn't know how to help them. So what they thought they were doing was providing them a chance in life to learn how to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And it just 
they they had no idea most of them had no idea what was going on now some of them just abandoned their children there but a lot of them just thought they were giving their child a better life and it it (laughs) was horrific Mm -hmm. okay so um Riviera shows up at the school and this is what he finds. It's, I mean, it's really horrific. There are about, there's, there was about one attendant per roughly 50 to 70 children. One attendant. For, what on earth? Mm-hmm. You can't uh, control anything that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't just children. It was adults as well. Um, they were naked, covered in feces, and according to Riviera, wailing. Yeah, I would uh, be too. Riviera in his filmed expose said that the facility, quote, uh, said of the facility, quote, it smelled of filth, it smelled of disease, and it smelled of death. That's bad. Mm-hmm. So when the expose came out, there were about 5,300 patients at Willowbrook. Building 6 housed the most extreme cases. And I'll tell you the name of this documentary if you want to go look at how we've evolved from the past. But it's like in the documentary, you can there's kids in straight jackets, in straight oh, jackets. No, it's bad. Oh, babies. Um, they were left to pretty much wallow in their own filth. Uh, they didn't go to school. No one talked to them, and they shared the same toilet. That's bad. There in building six alone, there were two nurses for the seventy people in that building. Two. You can't do that shit. Mm-hmm. I'm. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Disease was rampant. Um, when interviewed, Dr. Wilkins stated that, quote, a hundred percent of patients at Willowbrook contracted hepatitis within six months of being in the institution. It's so bad. Oh, listen, it gets worse. It was a hundred percent because the kids were being experimented on. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Adults and children were no, it's bad. Adults and children were knowingly injected with the virus that caused hepatitis for medical study for a medical study conducted by Dr. Saul Krugman from NYU and Dr. Robert McCollum from Yale. Now, Dr. Paul Offit, a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases, wrote about the testing, stating that Krugman would watch as their skin and eyes turned yellow and their livers got bigger. He watched them vomit and refused to eat. All the children fed um, all the children fed hepatitis virus became ill, some severely. Krugman reasoned, and this is a direct quote, that it was justifiable to inoculate intellectually disabled um, children, although he didn't use the term intellectually disabled. If you are going to go back and watch these old documentaries, know that they use the word retarded. So, um, well, it was the 70s. I know, so I know. even an issue. But, like, but um, so. That was uh, it. That was it. Oh, God, this is a whole thing. Okay. Yeah. So, quote, Krugman reasoned that it was justifiably inoculate, uh, justifiable to inoculate intellectually disabled children at Willowbrook with hepatitis because most of them would get hepatitis anyway. Some were force-fed to eat feces from other residents who were infected with the disease. Some drank hepatitis virus milkshakes. They were forced to drink it. What the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. No, it's bad. Dr. Wilkins went on to state, uh, quote, most patients at some time in their life have parasites. The incidence of pneumonia is greater than any other group of people that exist in this country. Uh, still quote, 
trauma is severe because these patients are left together on a ward. There are 70 developmentally disabled uh, people basically unattended fighting for a small scrap of paper on the floor to play with, fighting for the attention of the attendants who are overworked, trying to clean them, feed them, clothe them, and if possible, pay a little attention to them. So the attendants, uh, there were good and bad. Uh, there were, the good ones were just so overworked that it, cause it was, it was one for like 70 people. They were so, overworked. I can't imagine you wouldn't immediately burn out of that job. Well, they were, they tried, they were so overworked that it, it was, it was, oh yeah, they barely keep them fed and clothed. They didn't keep them clothed. A lot of them were just left naked, but they could, I mean, they, they didn't have what they needed to take care of these people. No. So, no, if um, you're in this career to do something good for the people around you, like, it, you can't. And it was because of government cutbacks. The government decided that the school didn't need as much money as it needed to take care of these people. Mm-hmm. Which came to bite this, uh, the state of New York in the ass. Um, good. And it as should. for the school part, fewer than 20% of the 5,300 people at the school attended any kind of class. Yeah. Because of the staff shortage and the quality of life, there was no one to teach the kids. Some kids hadn't learned basic motor functions, like how to feed themselves. There wasn't enough staff to teach them, and there wasn't enough staff to feed them. So instead of uh, tw- uh, so instead of the twenty to thirty minutes that kids should have gotten to eat, they had about two to three. Oh no. Mm-hmm. What would happen was the staff would take a bowl of food uh, made into a mush and just shovel it into the kids' mouths and then move on to the next, which caused horrible pneumonia problems. Yeah, no, you can't. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. That's going to cause everything bad. You. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, Diane Buglioli uh, recalled her first day at Willowbrook in 1969. Uh, she recalls being given a heavy steel key that was used to unlock door after door after door after door until she got to the last door. She stated she was worried about what she would find behind that last door, saying, quote, I found behind up 40 toddlers, some smiling, some asking me my name. Others were silent, just looking at me. Some walked towards me, some were lying in wooden carts, and some were sitting on the floor. Some were drooling, some were crying. It was surreal and just wrong. But they all share one undeniable truth. They were all little children. Oh my god, my heart. Mm-hmm. So uh, she goes on to say, quote, To this day I still feel the twinge in my stomach thinking to myself, why are these kids locked behind these doors? Mm-hmm. So the thing about Willowbrook's uh, was staff members were not required to submit to a background check for employment, which is how the doctors that did human experiments on them got through. Mm-hmm. Um, some were good people trying their best, like Buglioli, and some physically, sexually, and emotionally abused the residents. Yeah, I mean, you're automatically at a, a way higher risk of that, not just from the people who are supposed to care for you, but for the other people that you're in there with. There's Mm -hmm. no, you can't oversee that. It's not possible with those numbers. Mm -mm. No, it was bad. Um, And that is where the legend of Cropsy comes in. Mm -hmm. In July of 1987, Jennifer Schwager, a 12-year-old girl with Down syndrome, disappeared. Now, by 1987, I think the school had, or no, I know, by 1987, the school had been shut down completely and abandoned. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Jennifer's mother and neighbor, Donna Kutungno, I believe, immediately led a search for her. They called it um, Friends of Jennifer. Uh, and to the credit of Staten Island, so many people turned out to look for this little girl. I mean, like the whole, the whole of Staten Island pretty Good. much turned out to look for this little girl. Uh, they searched the Greenbelt or the woods. They searched Seaview. They searched Willowbrook. And they searched the tunnels underneath Willowbrook. Mm-hmm. Donna and her search party would step in after the police had searched an area and sweep it again just to make sure Jennifer wasn't there. Okay. And what they found was Andre Rand. So Andre Rand was a janitor at Willowbrook when it was in operation. When the school closed down, a number of patients and some staff like Rand gravitated back towards the school because they didn't, that had been their whole life. They didn't know where else to go. Mm -hmm. So they lived uh, homeless in the tunnels underneath Willowbrook or in the woods surrounding it. Rand, who was homeless after the school closed, was living in a makeshift makeshift campsite on the grounds of the abandoned school Mm -hmm. he became the authorities lead suspect almost immediately okay two witnesses had come forward and claimed they saw jennifer walking down the street around the time of her disappearance with a middle-aged gentleman with a quote-unquote female type of green bike with a basket on it so it was like this um this really pretty pastel green bike with a basket on it okay Uh, And um, the week before the disappearance, NYPD Detective Bobby Jensen saw Rand at a supermarket buying baby food. Rand then left the store, hopped on his green bike, put his purchase in the basket, and rode off. So they knew immediately who they were talking about, who the witnesses were talking about. Yeah. So once Jennifer disappeared, he immediately became a suspect. He was brought in and questioned, but released for lack of evidence. After four weeks of surveillance, he was arrested. See, Rand had pleaded guilty to sexual misconduct with a nine-year-old in 1969. Oh, fuck. Now, he denied the crime, but he did plead guilty. In 1983, get this, in 1983, he went to jail again for kidnapping a bus full of children from the local YMCA and driving them to the airport. What the actual fuck? Okay. <laughs> His prior criminal history, along with the evidence police had managed to gather, led them to believe that he was undoubtedly their man. Now, side note, I, I got most of this information from the Cropsey documentary on Amazon Prime, uh, and it shows when they arrested Rand. So um, go watch that documentary. It's it's insane. But um, it shows when they arrested Rand, and it's... He, he is so obviously not in his right mind. Like mm-hmm. they had him in handcuffs. They were pretty much carrying him down the stairs and he was drooling on himself. Oh no. He looked, I mean, it it's wild. He you need to see a picture of him. Um if you want to look up Andre Rand right now, he has these bulging eyes and this like large nose. Um, his hair was buzzed. It was sort of balding on top. Um, you see him and, and you know immediately there's Jesus, something yeah, there's something not right about him. But it's he's definitely not in his right mind. Um, and it's it's sort of frightening when you associate him with what he's known for now. But it's... <sighs> It's almost sympathetic because he's so obviously not in his right mind that you're like, oh, no. But then you think about what he's Mm -hmm. associated with and he takes on this completely sinister air. So 
After his arrest, the search party turned desperate. See, if they were going to find Jennifer alive, it was now or never. He was in custody. If he had left her somewhere, she was left alone. So, theory was he had, and now possibly a friend of his, uh, had Jennifer Mm -hmm. and was moving her through the tunnels under Willowbrook. During the search, one member of the party noticed what looked like a patch of land that had been dug up and filled in just outside of Rand's campsite. They found her body in a shallow grave just outside of the Willowbrook school grounds. The problem was, the only evidence they had tying Rand to Jennifer's body was eyewitness testimony. So in the last episode, we talked about the Innocence Project and... um, miscarriages of justice this is a very interesting case to look at uh because as a you'll see as a person i think he did it as a lawyer or not as a lawyer i'm not a lawyer but coming from a legal background they they had no evidence they had nothing to take to court and they still took him to court oh that's an issue Mm -hmm. uh he was convicted of so they had only eyewitness evidence only eyewitness evidence And he was convicted of um, kidnapping. Uh, The murder charge was dismissed because the jury couldn't come to an agreement on it. But he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Um, After his sentences, the police started looking at other missing children's cases. Rand was the suspect of at least four more disappearances. Ooh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Five-year-old Alice Piera, who uh, disappeared in 1972. Seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes, who disappeared in 1981. Um, she was last seen with Lorraine on the day of her disappearance. Eleven-year-old Tahis Jackson, who had a learning disability and disappeared in 1983. She was last seen with Rand on the day of her disappearance. And Hank DeForio, a mentally disabled 22-year-old who was last seen with Rand at a diner in 1984. Mm-hmm. To this day, none of their bodies have been found. Oh, no. Oh, mm-hmm. babies. But after 17 years in prison, Rand stood trial in 2004 for the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. A fellow inmate of Rand's had taken notes of conversations he had with Rand uh, and said that Rand described in detail his abduction of the girl. Uh, He was charged with kidnapping and given another 25-year sentence. In both cases, he was convicted on nothing more than circumstantial evidence. I don't necessarily have a problem with circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. And I also don't usually have a problem with cases that are just circumstantial evidence. There are some that's very compelling and very convincing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not that. That's not it. The circumstantial... No, the circumstantial evidence in this case isn't compelling. No. Um, it's um, in the in the documentary because the documentary uh, Cropsy, the documentary's name's Cropsy. It came out around the time, um, well, it came out while he was going uh, to trial for this second kidnapping charge, mm-hmm. and his lawyers rightfully believed that there wasn't enough evidence to convict him and that it was a false charge. And I say rightfully because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. No. Now, like I said, I I personally think he did it because there's something to be said about you're the last person to be seen in five missing case, missing children reports. Like, 
Yeah. There's something to be said about that. But legally, I, I have no idea how they convicted him. I have no idea. Yeah. No, that's that's really difficult. It really is. Um, yeah. Hmm. So, um, Holly Ann's brother became an officer and was instrumental in bringing him to court for his sister's disappearances. The reliability of the eyewitnesses can be called into question as some were alcoholics and didn't recall the details until after they were in rehab. Some were drug addicts and didn't recall the details until after they were in rehab. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I won't say their last name, although their full name is in the documentary, uh, but uh, a man named Thomas, who was an old workmate of Rand, thinks maybe he was framed. Uh, Bob, an old acquaintance of Rand and an early suspect in Jennifer's disappearance himself, also believes in Rand's innocence. Uh, however, several people, including Glenn Chapman and NYPD detective Leonard D'Alessandro, uh, believed that Rand would kidnap girls and pass them around to a group of homeless people living in the tunnels under the Willowbrook School. So scary. Mm -hmm. Chapman himself stated in the documentary Cropsy that Rand was like, quote unquote, a low class white trash version of Jim Jones. Oh, and that mm -hmm, and that he had somehow gotten um, the homeless people within the area to follow him in a manner similar to Jim Jones. I didn't really know that Jim Jones could get worse than he was. <laughs> I know. I didn't know that Jim Jones could get more white trash. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um. There is also stories that he took these children for satanic rituals. I don't put much talk in those. In fact... It's satanic rituals during the 80s? I'm sorry. <laughs> I automatically don't believe you. A mysterious letter had been mailed to Jennifer's family claiming that Rand had been supplying children to the Church of the Process, the same cult that allegedly helped David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam, commit murders. Ooh. Uh, the letter was eventually traced to Veronica Lucan, a local cult leader. Uh, she wasn't satanic. It wasn't a satanic cult. It was a. It was one of those deeply Christian cults. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, she ha allegedly had visions of Jennifer being sacrificed in a ritual, and that's why she wrote to the to Jennifer's family and the police. Yeah, no, she sounds very um, credible. <laughs> So, um, at the time of Rand's arrest, he was living in a room in Reverend Musket's house. Uh, Musket had cooperated with police to take Rand in and have his house bugged so that they might gather information on Rand. Because, fun fact, it's not a violation of your right to privacy if it's not your home. Yeah, exactly. So, Isn't it great? Yeah, so, um, what had happened was, um, Rand was, uh, very interested in Musket's son who was intellectually disabled. And I don't think it was a sexual interest. I think it was just, cause like I said, I don't think that Rand was in his right mind anyway. So I think it was just, just talking to him, befriending him type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the police came to him and said, well, take him into your house, give him a room We're we're going to bug your house because they had no evidence. They had nothing. We're going to bug your house and see if we can't get something. Mm hmm. And so Reverend Musket uh, took him in. Uh, he stated that Rand told him he took Jennifer because he thought, quote, quote, unquote, her family didn't want her and that she was alone. And he felt that people that had mental handicaps shouldn't be alive, that people wouldn't appreciate or care for someone with a mental handicap. According to Detective, 
According to detectives and Reverend Muscat, Rand viewed it as his mission to cleanse the world of imperfect children um, in a sinister sense in that I've got to get rid of imperfect children and also in a sense to spare them. So in the documentary, it's it's presented in both ways in that sinister like almost sort of Nazi cleansing of the world type of way. Uh, but also he had been a janitor for so for at Willowbrook and had seen the conditions that these kids were in. And it almost seems like he thought that he was doing them the biggest favor by killing them mm-hmm. because he didn't want them to be subjected to conditions like that again. Right. Well, like I don't agree with that. I don't agree with him. No, of course but not. But like, Having worked where he did and having seen what he saw, I can understand why he thought nobody would want these kids. Yeah, and he was also um, his his family had a history of uh, well, his mother had a history of mental uh, instability, and so I think he also did, and it was just never diagnosed. And so add to that, seeing what he saw, yeah, he just sort of downward spiraled. Yeah, um, the Reverend also believed that Rand was possessed. Okay. Uh, Diane, uh, <laughs> Diane, gosh, I wish I could say her last name. Uh, Cudugno, C-U-T-U-G-N-O, Cudugno, something like that. Uh, Diane, however, has never stopped looking for the other four missing children. She looks every day for them. Oh, that's heartbreaking. She still wanders the grounds of Willowbrook to this day looking for their bodies because she's convinced that they're there. Oh, oh that's sad. Now... Uh, Rand has pled his innocence to the end. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there was, there just wasn't evidence to convict him. Now he did get a conviction, but there, it just wasn't there. Um, by the time that he had been taken to court, he would, he had already been demonized by the whole of Staten Island. Right. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma to think about is this another one of those they have the wrong man now like i said personally i think that he's 100 percent kidnapped these children and killed them but mm-hmm. legally there's not enough there to say for sure i think you're right i think you know your standard is beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. and i think i have some reasonable doubts as to you know was this somebody that like okay cool he He's not like a bad suspect to have. And and he but... the Reverend says that he confessed to the Reverend, but that never showed up on the tapes that the police got from the bugged house. Right. And like your Reverend is not no no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, that's not to me valid can, I don't know. I'm so yeah. suspicious of church people Mm -hmm. who are already shown to take this person into your home and make them trust you Mm -hmm. to trick you. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's, you, you need to watch the documentary. It is worth watching Mm -hmm. because it really is this type of thing where I personally, there's no doubt, but then you, you start looking at what they had to take them to court on and you're like, that's not enough. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, real quick, for those of you wondering, uh, parents and residents at Willowbrook filed a class action lawsuit in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York in 1972, shortly after the expose was aired. Okay. 
The lawsuit, of course, alleged that the school violated the constitutional rights of the residents living there. Because Judge Orrin, yeah, because it grievously did. Uh, Judge Orrin Judd signed the Willowbrook Consent Decree in 1975, forcing New York State to improve conditions at the school and lower the overcrowding from 4,000 patients to no more than 250 by 1980. Okay. So the the parents unequivocally won the lawsuit. I mean, just Good. just tore the state of New York a new they asshole. They should have. Mm-hmm. The dissent decree did not immediately close Willowbrook State School, but rather recognized that people with developmental disabilities had a constitutional right to be protected against harm and cared for in a humane, non-institutional setting to prepare them to be contributing members of the community. Because before then... That was not the idea at all. No. Before then, it was shutter them away. Yep. So the Willowbrook Review Panel, formed in 1975, was comprised of seven people whose job it was to oversee the implementation of the consent decree. Mm-hmm. Maury Schnepps, a Staten Islander and success- successful uh, civil litigator whose daughter, Laura, attended the Willowbrook State School, became the vice chairman for the panel. Schnepps, the uh, quote-unquote legal gladiator, aimed to end the warehousing of individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and instead establish community residences for care. The consent decree was one of many victories to come in the Willowbrook nightmare. So the um, case against Willowbrook was really the turning point that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's really amazing. I'm glad that something Mm -hmm. good came out of this. Yep. So here's, I mean, here's the breakdown of it. Uh, the protecting and a- uh, the protection and advocacy system, as outlined in the Developmental Disabilities Assistant and Bill of Rights Act of 1975, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, and the Civil Rights uh, Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act of 1980, create helped create the foundation for additional federal litigation or legislation that eventually led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it started Good. at Willowbrook and down the hill. Good, good, good. In 1974, prior to the closing of Willowbrook, the school was renamed the Staten Island Developmental Center. At this time, the school had less than 300 patients, so they were getting closer to that 250 um, uh, cutoff uh, as mandated by the court and the consent decree. Uh, Willowbrook shut its doors for the last time in September of 1987. Okay. The city of New York eventually acquired the land. You <laughs> can get this. Oh, no. <laughs> so they acquired part of the land. Okay. Um, most of uh, Willowbrook, the, the actual school of Willowbrook, uh, is just a decaying old building that's being overrun by the forest around it. Same with CVU, same with the poor farm. But um, the state of New York eventually acquired some of the land and later became the current campus of the College of Staten Island. Oh my god. There are certain things where like I would not choose a school over and that's one of them. I sort of agree, yeah. Yeah, maybe that seems like some bad juju happening up there. Just mm-hmm. is. <laughs> Geraldo Rivera, um 
has never forgotten what he saw the first time he stepped into the school. Uh, throughout the years, Riviera has kept in touch with a number of patients from the school and has become an advocate for people with intellectual and de uh, developmental disabilities. In 2015, Riviera established the Gerardo Riviera Fund for Social Work and Disability Studies at CSI. Good. The fund, mm -hmm. the fund provides support for public conferences, some symposia, uh, lectures, and new publications that inform the public and continue the legacy of empowering people with disabilities and influencing public policy. On the grounds of the former Willowbrook State School lies a new mile-long pathway called the Willowbrook Mile. It winds through the 383-acre campus of the College of Staten Island. It includes 10 informational stations and eventually will include interactive kiosks with audio and visual components about the history of Willowbrook State School. So it's they're really they're not going to let it die, which I think is very important because mm -hmm. you learn from history by remembering it. Oh, yeah, definitely. You can't forget the lessons that we've already learned. Mm hmm. Um, Dr. Wilkins uh, as well has done amazing things. Um, to this day, residents of the College of Staten Island have reported seeing apparitions of former patients and hearing unearthly yowls at night. People report to hear disembodied footsteps echo in the deserted corridors. Others hear whispered voices calling out their names and children giggling in the hallways because kids still go into the old schools like a dare. No, I don't like it. Nope. All right. Uh, one employee at the college uh, reportedly saw the ghostly figures of two children. Or no, I'm sorry. One employee um, at Willowbrook before it closed down um, reportedly saw the ghostly figure of two children lurking in the building. They were dressed in ragged clothing. She said that she couldn't figure out why the children were there, so she followed them. But they soon turned a corner and disappeared completely. Mm. Two teenage trespassers exploring the school at night say they were chased around the grounds by a dark figure. They ran back to their house, but when they looked out the window, they realized the shadowy figure had followed them home and was standing in their garden. It stood there until the sun came up. Oh my god. No, thank you. I'm good. Mm -hmm. And that's the story of the true face behind the legend of Staten Island's Cropsy and the deplorable conditions at Willowbrook School that, at the very least, helped shape that truth. I'm so happy that something came out of that that was positive and that has a real impact today in helping people. Because, mm -hmm. for fuck's sake, if you have that much misery concentrated in one place, something good should come out of it. Yeah, uh, I like the way the documentary uh, Cropsy ends. Uh, so this is a direct quote from the documentary. Um, the power of the urban legend is that it doesn't claim to be the truth, but rather it says the truth is a range of possibilities and it's the audience who must decide. So pick one. I like that. I mm -hmm. do. Uh, so my um, sources are Willowbrook, Willow The Last Disgrace, which is the Riviera Exposé. It's if you if you are going to watch it, it's on YouTube for free. If you are going to watch it, be prepared because it's horrific. It is horrific. The conditions that these children were in. Mm -hmm. um, so not so fun. Fun fact, because it's not fun at all. Uh, before airing the expose, ABC News, it was aired on ABC News. ABC News warned, quote unquote, tonight as a public service, we are going to make you sick. OK, good. Um also, sort of fun fact, 
Rand shared a cell block with the son of Sam. Why do you have those people in such close proximity <laughs> to each other? Like, I understand that's the whole point, but like, maybe it shouldn't be. I don't know. That seems bad. <laughs> um, my other sources are 13th Floor TV, The Haunted Horror of Willowbrook School of the Damned by Dick Siegel, uh, HauntedStatenIsland.com, Willowbrook State School by Jay Harden, uh, ScaryForKids.com, Willowbrook State School, Cropsy, the documentary by Joshua Zeman. I advise that you watch that documentary as well uh, just to get a full sense of Andrew Rand uh, Andre sorry not Andrew Andre Rand and Cropsy the terrifying urban legend brought to life at the lineup.com uh, and the horror of Willowbrook State School by Kristen F. Dalton at salive.com and because I think it's important, just like with the Innocence Project, here are a couple of organizations that I did a lot of research on. So I think that they're really good organizations. If you know them and you know that they're not, just let us know. Um, but the ARC, uh, which is an organization that focuses on, according to their mission statement, promoting and protecting the human rights of people with intellectual and de developmental disabilities, Friendship, Friendship Circle International which creates a sort of mentorship program. Uh, they, quote-unquote, create meaningful relationships and friendships between teen volunteers and children with disabilities to increase confidence, ignite dreams, and redefine worldviews for both parties. Mm -hmm. uh, their inspiration for the organization comes from Rabbi uh, Mencha Mendel Schneerson, uh, who said that... Uh, who uh, was said to make everyone feel that they belonged and that they were at home, which is what a religious leader should be. Um, Federation for Children with Special Needs, uh, who, according to the executive director of the company, is dedicated to ensuring that every family and child has equitable access to uh, educational, medical, and community support. They provide financial reports on their website, so you get to see how they use the money that's being donated. Uh, and they have programs like the Family Support Center, Health Advocacy Center, Special Education Parent Center, and more. And last but not least, Special Needs Alliance, which connects you to an attorney in your area that practice disability and public benefits law good mm -hmm. so if you want to give those a check out if um i know that everybody's like losing their jobs right now but if you have the means and would like to donate go ahead and donate um i think that there are organizations i did a lot of research on them so i think that they're good organizations but like i said if i'm wrong i will i will completely admit that i'm wrong mm -hmm. and and want want to know what a good or charity organization is so yeah definitely awesome thank you thank you for sharing those because those are yep. really important yep yep so that's uh that's the horrific story of willowbrook and andre rand who became the cropsy legend oh it's horrific <laughs> oh boy <laughs> that was bad yeah, no, it's um, it was an interesting rabbit hole that I fell into because I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like willfully ignorant in that area. I know just how horrifically people with um intellectual and developmental disabilities have been treated in the past. But I, I didn't know about Willowbrook. I didn't know about some of the conditions that were going on. Mm -hmm. It's, it was, it's bad. I mean, it's bad. Yeah. No, that's really awful. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. Okay. Yep. 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 Well, so. here we go. <laughs> <sighs> 
Yep, yep. Uh, so uh, tell the people where they can find us. Right, you can find us wherever you find the civilized creatures. They're at civilized creatures on pretty much everything. Um, Google them and you'll find them. Um, but you can find us specifically at W-I-Y-H-T on Twitter. We're at What's In Your Hometown on Instagram. And if you would like to send us a suggestion, give us a story, make us feel a little bit better about ourselves... <laughs> Um, or if you have an organization because I, I think I'd like to bring more attention to certain organizations um, so if you have an organization that you think is doing really good go ahead and send that in to us as well yeah absolutely let us take a look at it and you know I, there's only so much that we can do but we have this platform and I feel like it's really important for us if we have a, an opportunity to interject something where it's relevant you know mm-hmm. give those platform, give those organizations some additional visibility um, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, uh, please feel free to write into us. We're at what's in your hometown, um, or what's in your hometown at Gmail. Um, and we really look forward to hearing from you guys. It's going to be really yep, fun. Yep. 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 All right. Well, I guess all that leaves is with the mind oh, no. blowing horrific shit that is and was in the world. You have got to wonder. What is in your hometown? Bye. Bye.